0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. It is Friday, the 4th of September. Michael, how have you been?
1: I'm wonderful, Gary. It's September, September. We're into the the fall and it's all very mellow and fruitful.
0: Right, Michael. Let's go into... uh, One thing I I wanted to talk about. Yes. The rare piece of news in Ireland that actually annoys me. The government has announced... I have, I have such low expectations, Michael, that even stuff you think should annoy me doesn't. But this, this is a real, this is a real thing. So the government has announced that they are going to bring in requiring pubs to keep a record of t- for 28 days of everything that you ate and drank when you were in that pub, and that these are going to be linked to you by your name and your phone number.
1: Yeah. Also, they're going to keep a record of when you arrived in the pub and when you left.
0: And I, we've had people coming out and saying, well, this seems like it might run afoul of GDPR and there maybe data protection people, or sorry, there may be data protection issues. And I don't care about that, Michael, because I don't care about data protection and I don't care about the data protection people either. No. I think they destroyed themselves publicly after GDPR when this, great messiah of data protection turned out to be a thing that can primarily be referred to as a massive pain in the ass for most people.
1: It has become a yoke around the neck of many organisations and yeah, it's probably in the process quietly of strangulating a lot of smaller organisations that simply won't be able to function legally and will just quietly go out of business. I mean, not actual businesses, the businesses will be affected, but small voluntary organisations that just... The compliance is just excessive and unnecessary as well.
0: So you've got those people coming out and saying data protection issues. And I know the Irish Restaurant Association has already complained to the data protection guys about this, the data commissioner. Mm -hmm. And that's fair because they want to stop this thing. And then you have other people coming out and saying that this is a totalitarian infringement on the rights of the people of Ireland we had a Fianna Fáil TD TV say it was Stasi, uh, Stasi-like. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I have to say... I, I give him points for moving away from a Nazi comparison. You know, he didn't go
1: Gestapo. He didn't go KGB. Stasi. There's a kind of a nice... I don't know. It's a 1960s, 1970s retro-chic feel to it. It's a bit like a Le Carre. It's, I think it's a nice education. It's a slightly educated uh, feel to it as a reference.
0: Yeah, it's it's slightly off the beaten track, but it's not like totally avant garde. Like it wasn't like he was going. Uh, this is Santa Ballest, <laughs> no. Which for those who don't know were, were the uh, Rouges. Uh, <laughs> keepers of the peace. I believe is the uh, is the direct translation.
1: Or if you wanted to go a completely different direction, there was a group which was often came up in the news in my childhood, which were the wonderfully named Tonton Makut, which was the uh, enforcement agency of a, a guy called Papa Doc Duvalier, who was the dictator and monster in ha- Haiti for many years. And he had the Tonton Makut. So he didn't you know, he went for Stasi, and it's uh, it's, it's a good one. It's a, it's a nicely, it's, you know, there's a, an element of... Intimidation. It, there's a word that begins with "essence" in my head. I can't get it. i dementia coming soon. But Stasi. It's it's a good sounding word. So it may be a little bit over the top in this case. By the way, just there was one thing I wanted just for the the, the reader isn't aware of the um, the various rules that are coming in. That what you know that a record a record of what the customer orders has to be kept. They have to re- when 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 they arrive. When they leave but also the cafes and restaurants must now ensure that no more than six people from a maximum of three households are at one table now i can work i know how you can work out how six people because that's one hand plus a finger on the other hand that's six right but how how are they going to ask how are they going to ensure that there are no more than three households what would constitute a household? Is it possible, Gary, that people could lie and get away with it? You could have four or even five households at a table. and Nobody would know the difference. That kind of thing could go on. I mean, why would you make a rule which is literally impossible to keep?
0: Well, I mean, the regu- the regulations You say, well, you keep it so the guards can inspect it. Or anyone appointed by the HSE can inspect. Yeah, because that's that's what we need. We need to... Also, we, the minister's come out and said that this needs to be tied to a name and a uh, a number of someone. Yes. But when you read the what they're actually talking about, when you look at uh, Section 1C, it says, make a record of the substantial meal or meals ordered pursuant to the Regulation 11, blah, 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 by each member of a party of persons. So that doesn't sound to me as if you need the contact details of one person. That sounds like you need the contact details of all people, and you need not just a receipt, but a broken down listing of what each of these people ordered every time they were in the building.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of receipts hanging around. The RLC could just have to love a, a ledger because, obviously, as we said, GDPR issues. Nobody wants to keep this on computer because you know then you're going to have GDPR problems. I I would love for some nice, bad-tempered, forensic kind of a journalist to sit down with whoever's idea this was. I imagine it was Stephen Donnelly's, the Minister for Health. And go through it bit by bit, just pick it apart and explain how precisely this is going to prevent the spread of COVID.
0: Well, that's the thing. The people who are saying this is tyrannical overreach, I don't give a shit about that either. Because we, we don't even get to that level of analysis with this. My issue with this, the my, my thing that annoys me about it is that it is so fundamentally fucking stupid. Do you remember when they brought, they brought in the regulations on substantial meals, which this thing is meant to check, with basically no scientific backing. Yes. They wanted a way to try and enforce social distancing and to limit the amount of people who could be in a facility. And instead of just Fucking writing down. There can only be this many people in a facility, or a facility must be set up within these guidelines, and that can be subject to inspection. Yeah, they did this. They they took this nonsensical piece of shit and tried to update it and use it for an anti-Covid guideline, and it doesn't work. It's nonsense. It is ridiculous. And instead of just saying, you know what, lads, that didn't work. We'll just replace it with something saying, look, yes, you can open, but you have to to abide by certain conditions as to numbers, which is what this is meant to do. But they're treating pub owners and by extension the public like they're fucking children who you can't just say, look, lads, be sensible with this. And we will inspect your premises if we feel you're not. And instead of changing it, they've doubled down and said, no, what we need is, is some sort of national database of every piece of food and drink you consume. Which seems totally unworkable. I mean, how do you... Ins- a, a, a guard can come in and inspect this for up to 28 days. What is he going to do? Give us every one for Michael Dwyer for the last 28 days that he's been in this pub.
1: Uh, yeah, who exactly is being investigated here? I mean, what's the... OK, let's let's establish for a start that one thing that it seems to me that's transpar- transparently the case is that this is not actually about any kind of new insight on how to prevent COVID, but rather they have discovered that there are people going out to, to, to bars in Dublin and are sharing small dishes of hummus between them and that that is constitution that constitutes a substantial meal and they can go on and do their drinking and this they find upsetting what they're actually upset as is that they feel that the rule regarding the substantial meal the nine euro is not being properly observed it's nothing to do with covid it's a fact that people are oh getting round the rule or not looking and understanding the full spirit of the rule so they're doing this No. You raise a very good point. Who precisely is this aimed at? Now, if you keep a tiller receipt, and you have to ensure that there's going to be X number of dinners, X number of substantial meals, and you're keeping a record, if you're going to break the rules, Gary, why why would you keep a record to say that there were six people at this table, but only three of them murdered? Food. why wouldn't you say there are three people at the table and three of them are their food?
0: What are the guards going to do? Have some sort of forensic accountant with them? Who goes, okay, now show us your books.
1: The guards don't have enough forensic accountants to actually pursue white collar crime and serious fraud in this country, a subject we've talked about before. They should have far more supports. This, I, It's nonsense. Guards are going to sit into a, a busy pub in Dublin with two biscuit tins full of receipts and rest and, and sort of and bills of fare, re- food men- receipts or whatever bar receipts. Because the bar receipts presumably would have to be compared to the food receipts to make sure that the number. But how would you know? I mean, we're not, we're, we're told you can only be in the place for a certain amount of time, Gary, but you're not told how many drinks you can have in the certain amount. So, if you go in, you're an hour and a half. There, I know people who could, in a space of 90 minutes, happily consume 10 or 11 pints. I know other people who would have three pints or a couple of gins or glasses of wine. So, the number of drinks consumed is not going to tell you. Or be indicative in any way of the number of people that were actually there so the number of people that were there sh- would indicate the number of meals that should have been considered I, 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 you know, just the very notion that you're going to try and do it anyways just bolloxology, stupid say to the pubs listen we don't want people up at the bar we don't want people standing up. We want everybody sitting down and we want social distancing maintained.
0: That's the rules. Social distancing, table service only, or something approximating table service.
1: And then uh, away you go. If you, if you can do that as a pub and open and you feel like you can do that and make money but well, open up if you can't, then then don't. But away you go.
0: All this makes me think is that they have no idea what they're doing. And when it turns out that something that they did, because they had no idea what they were doing, and also they kind of wanted to get a bit cute, because they didn't think that, well, we'll just put out these regulations and people will actually abide by them, instead of going, is this working? They just double down. And they're, they're, I mean, yeah, if you're a pub owner, and you have to have these records ready for inspection by the guardee, do you have to have them in a format where a guard can easily find a particular name? I mean, are... If you've ever wanted to become a, like a, a research archivist now is your opportunity in the pub trade And it seems I, I don't what does this achieve? What does it do? Why would they be looking for a
1: specific name anyway Why would they be looking for any name I I don't see that the connection between and on, okay I can see the name thing if they're talking about contact tracing is an issue because,
0: it, but that's it, that's a different thing. Then you, if that's the case, then you need to start grouping these things depending on on time as well. I don't know. It's like this is going to start getting really complicated. And I see people be like, "Oh, it's just you know, print another copy of a receipt." Like, no, they want identifying information on these things, and it looks like it will have to be broken down. So, sort of like, it's an itemized listing. I think Paul, I, you know yeah. actually seeing this Michael makes me a lot less sympathetic to Donnelly about uh, Fiona Sheehan calling him the biggest bullshitter in the doll the other week. <laughs> okay. Cuz you know, th- this is absolutely like a McKinsey I worked as a management consultant for this is absolutely something that would come out of them.
1: But this is also, is this not also part of the fact that we're just hearing two sets uh, two sets of Attitudes about the pubs from exact from in, wonderfully from exact from the same mouth. We heard Leo. Remember last week? Was, yeah, was that was last week or this week? Leo said in, that we were now, and he seemed to be quite proud of it. At least that was the impression he gave. That we were the la the only country in Europe now that had no wet pubs open. Right. We're now told that at a Finnegal parliamentary party. He was given out about the fact that the pubs weren't opened. At the same time, we were hearing noises from the government saying, Mmm, the pubs won't be, probably won't be opening in September. You know, we have to get the schools open and we keep the pubs closed because we want the schools open. Now, barring their suspicion that the teachers were going in with massive hangovers and this was in some way affecting their performance in school, and we're not quite sure what the connection between the pubs and the schools was. But again, maybe Donnelly or somebody from the HSE could explain that to us with more clarity. So, but there was, there was, there were, we were getting a very strong vibe from certain people. I, you, I think, talked to some of them. I certainly talked. Who are saying, you know what? We should, we couldn't, we should not be surprised if the pubs don't open in a while. And if it gets close to Christmas, they won't want the pubs open at Christmas because obviously you're right in the heart of winter, second wave fears. And Christmas is a time when people will get drunk, strip naked and lick each other as they do every Christmas. And that will cause another uh, another outbreak. So that they we're suddenly looking into the possibility of the pubs not opening until next year. Now we have them complaining about, we have these voices from Fine Gael. I love, and Leo, I said today on Twitter, I thought, I've, Leo is just having such a good time. He has never been so relaxed. He is really enjoying being leader of the opposition. And he's being a very effective leader of the opposition, I think more effective than Mary Lou in many ways. But one of these days, he's also going to have to notice he's also the tallest member of this government. And there's only so much speaking out of both sides of your mouth that you can do at any one time. So this is uh, the incoherence is getting getting to the point that they're starting. I think there's a real risk that people are going to start to get really fed up and To maintain the social disciplines that you want, that the government wants to maintain the behaviours that they want, requires a sense of people being in this together. And that's fraying badly now.
0: This has gone to a ridiculous extent. This is not a policy that they can explain in a rational way that any decent reporter couldn't kick to shit in five minutes. I mean, if we had the like of a Paxman or something, can you imagine Donnelly sitting down with someone like that?
1: Oh, I, I would Trying
0: love to... to explain this policy and the substantial meal policy and how and there's not really anything behind them, but they, you know, they had a hunch that this was the right thing.
1: I would love to see Paxman do it or Andrew Neil. To me, this is an absolute classic example of the old political cliche. The politicians sit down and say, we must do something this is something, we must do it. But it's just, it's activity. It's something to put on a paper. It's something to say, oh, look, we're on top of it. We're doing something. We're minding they you.
0: Yeah, they, 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 I think this is just a feeling. We have to do something. Okay, that was a bit of a bollocks. But Finnegale did that, not us. So now we've got to do something. And I just, I don't have the feeling that going around telling people that, by the way, we're going to minutely log every drink and meal you have outside your house there's just gonna be a, a series of databases all over the place with that about you' uh, is gonna make people think yeah you know, that sense of goodwill towards government that might be useful to have come winter then again it probably won't be this government so
1: I <laughs> know <laughs> uh, I still' think, I think I'm, I'm sticking to my prediction that Leo won't want the job back until the weather starts getting good after Easter but also I do they do they have a bit of a, a a hatred for the public house and in fact for alcohol generally? It underlying all of this. Like I know that people when they drink become disinhibited and perhaps are more likely to engage in risky behaviours and therefore. But either you know, bite the bullet and say, okay, no more drinking. That's it. Stay at home and smoke doobies, but. We have this, the other proposal, you saw the proposal that concerts, they would, they were considering having, we would ha, have concerts would be okay. But there'll be no, you couldn't go to a concert with drink.
0: Here's the thing, Michael, when you look at the European regulations for COVID-19. Yeah. We are now a fairly substantial outlier oh. on the severity of the measures we still have in place. Now, part of that is because we handled, let, let's rephrase that, Fine Gael handled the initial stages of this really poorly. This this immense crackdown now sees us performing worse than several of European countries who have much laxer requirements upon people now. And also this policy achieves nothing. There is no conceivable benefit to public health that this will generate unless this is a roundabout way of getting pubs to just go, you know what? It's not worth opening.
1: And what public benefit is served by that? I mean, to your knowledge, if we go back over the last number of weeks, where we have seen the increase in the number of cases, now that has also happened at the same time when we've also seen the increase in the number of tests. I, I think Friday of two weeks ago, there were two thir- it was published at the front page of the Ar- the, the Irish Times, thirteen thousand tests. Which was the highest, it's the highest tests number in in, in in one go that we have seen since the beginning, and it's worth observing. And I don't know what difference that makes to the numbers, but the more people you test, then the more people, the more positives you're going to get. But how many of the cases have been connected to people drinking in pubs or in restaurants? <coughs> To your knowledge, I mean, have we seen stories about this? I I remember there was one story about uh, a house party in Waterford. Now, I haven't heard any other stories about house parties, even though we know that house parties have been the other great enemy. And we've seen the Vintners on the other side suggesting that, the uh, as we, we mentioned before, that the... Off-licenses maybe need to be controlled because people were buying drinking the off-licenses to having house parties. And house parties were obviously a big problem.
0: But I... Can I really say house party? Do you mean, like, meat factory? You see, I, that's what I don't mean.
1: I don't mean meat factories. I think um, we see, we have seen evidence that of meat factories, not just the... The working parts, but say the, the, the shall we say the recreation rooms for people go to smoke a cigarette in certain meat factories, Or shall we say social distancing didn't seem to be uh, a, a number one priority. The outbreaks that we've seen seem have been massively connected, either to meat factories or before that to uh, the uh, the um, direct provision. I I'm unaware of exa- of some hers. Of of data which tells us that places serving alcohol have been a locus of infection or contagion. No, maybe it's there, and if one of the listeners wants to make a send us a, details about that, I'd be I'd be fascinated to read it. But I'm not aware of that. And if if they are not a problem, then then this very much seems to be an answer to a question that nobody is asking.
0: But uh, this this I I think is uh is did legitimately annoy me because you know. Do you know what the worst kind of a bad policy, Michael, is? Mm Mm-hmm. The worst kind of bad policy is the kind where people don't realise how bad the policy is and build upon it. And by the end of it, it's impossible to tell what the impact of that policy was. And this seems to be going in the same way. We did something, didn't really seem to have any impact, at best.
1: Let's do more of it.
0: We'll do more. And we'll just do more, and we'll do more. Because it would be a sign of weakness if we said we don't actually even understand why we did the first step and I've read their reasoning and it's nonsense. Like a child and not a, like not even a child so gifted you were you would try terribly hard to get them into the better schools, but like a decent child <clears throat> could kick it apart. And they just that, that is their that is their grand scope of idea.
1: Yeah, when, it's, it's it's when it comes to policy making, that's a long and a noble tradition. Um, for example, if you introduced um, rent control, right, and the rent control didn't have any effect on homelessness or the ability of people to get out, then you say, okay, the problem is not that the policy is a bad policy, you just haven't had enough of it. If you introduced a minimum wage and poverty didn't fall, you'd say, it's not that minimum wages are a bad idea, we just need a bigger minimum wage if you took over you nationalized the banks because you wanted to help people build houses and you wanted to stop financial speculation and none of that happens. say we just need to have more control that's what governments do that's what politicians do they never have a bad idea they only have an idea which hasn't been sufficiently supported so you keep going you keep going because otherwise what are you going to do gary say do you know what we made a mistake it was a bad idea now, we saw an absolutely bizarre scene in Germany. I don't know if you saw that, where the a minister in the government in Germany came out and said, "You know what? Uh, we made a re- we made a mistake with the lockdown. It was far too extensive and severe. And we, if you know, if we did if, something like this again, we wouldn't make that mistake again." That kind of madness. You saw the scene in in Sweden, where the minister came out and said, "You know, we made a mistake." on care homes nursing homes that was our fault we let the ball drop we didn't pay enough attention there and people died and that was our fault so thank god nothing like that ever
0: happens in Ireland
1: because politicians don't make mistakes so they never have to say that they were wrong and they never
0: have to say they're sorry I, I would legitimately love to understand what this is because it's, it serves no purpose it achieves nothing it can achieve nothing I mean, just like just on a political level, yeah. Ignoring this, what do you think this is actually meant to achieve? Because it has, to a degree, I can rarely think of in Irish politics, totally fucking stumped me.
1: Well, I go back to this. When I, I always go back to the simplest and most obvious explanation, Gary, in any situation. It's like when I, when people say. Oh, it's because they're all wicked and they're all conspiring. No, if you have a choice between a, a politician being stupid and being malicious, I always believe they're being stupid. I think that's the normal, the charitable explanation. So why are they doing this? Okay, I think it's a little bit analogous to the situation, say, if you look back in a lot of countries in February, when this the pandemic was coming towards us but hadn't arrived, right? There was this, not a lot happened. There's a sense of waiting for us. So people didn't do it. We're now in a situation where the numbers are going up. Now, we had always expected that the numbers would. In fact, that had been the prediction. We would have the lockdown. We would protect the health system. We would stop people going into ICU. We wouldn't, the, the system would not be overwhelmed. So we would flatten the curve. And then gradually we would reopen the economy. And as that happened, you would have a number, the number of cases would go up. Now, because The the curve was flattened so successfully that we'd actually... The problem was we got down to a a notion where we briefly believed, do you know what? We can actually extirpate this virus completely. We can be like New Zealand. Now, New Zealand, as it happens, has had its own recurrence, so it didn't happen.
0: I must must check the figures, Michael, but I think we get about 250 to 300% more international terrorism. Than New Zealand does in an average year, which would seem problematic, um, from the side of controlling this virus. Totally.
1: Well, it, it's not. I think it's not just tourism, because tourism has fallen. We're we're down ninety percent on flights. It's not. I think the problem for us isn't so much tourism, but rather the fact that we are a small, extremely open economy, which is also the headquarters for example, are an important centre for a very many international companies, American companies, but also not, not just American companies, pharmaceutical companies, banking companies. We, so, we're always going to have people coming in and out of this economy, in this country, if <laughs> unless we just want to shut up shop completely. But yes, I think if New Zealand gets 3 million tourists a year, we get something like 11 million tourists a year, something like that. Then I, I'm numbers off the top. Out of the RC, but yeah, the, the percentage-wise, I think you're about right. So what the problem is now, they've bought into this notion that we could extirpate the thing, and we can't. The numbers are going up. Now it's worth pointing out that while the cases are in, are are reoccurring, the numbers of people that are dying from this, thankfully, are staying very steady, very low. The numbers of people in hospital being hospitalized and the numbers of people going into ICU are staying steady and are staying low, as is happening in the rest of Europe. So if, you're, if you are following hospitalizations and people getting sick and people becoming seriously ill, then we're not in a dramatically worse situation. Now, the fear may be that if we don't take action, that, that could return. That's a, maybe a legitimate fear. But most of what I think there's just this sense that they have to be seen to do something. We, whether it's rightly or wrongly, politicians. I think that we expect them to be active, to be actively doing things all the time. I think they're wrong. I think that if they, if they engaged in reasonable and honest communication with the people, saying this and this is the situation, this is why we're doing this, we're not going to be taking any more radical steps. We're, we're in. We're going to try and boost our testing and tracing. We're going to be trying to react very quickly to where there are problems. But like, say, the lockdown in Kildare, right? Was there any practical purpose to the lockdown in Kildare? Well, it was later in Kildare, Nation and Daufley. Did that actually serve a practical
0: purpose? I mean, the thing there is, I, I don't think it was effective. I don't, I don't think it was effective at all. But you could at least make an argument as to why it would be effective. Now, I think on a practical level, it was it was never going to be run out. I don't think it was a good argument. But there was at least an argument. Whereas this, I don't even think they've even bothered to make an argument. And if they think that if, if this is some weird thing to get, just get everyone to abide by the meal thing, which is in itself farcical. Just say that just tighten the regulations on that it, just, I, I, I.
1: if they were really serious about the meal thing it seems to me the most and I, I don't I wouldn't like it and I don't think it should be done but if they really wanted to do that, the most effective way would be have a series of unannounced Guards coming into pubs and checking right there on the scene in the same way as the guards would come in to check maybe underage drinking or after hours drinking. And you go on and you do a raid. And if you do it, and then if there's a raid, well, then that has serious consequences, either fines or serious consequences for license renewal. And that kind of threat would probably modify behavior if they were really concerned about that.
0: Absolutely, I was out uh, during the week. Guards came in at, I think, one, possibly two points during the night because it was in Dublin. Just walked in, looked around, left. Because you can kind of tell at a glance. Like if social distancing is being maintained, if the pub is set up in such a way that it can be maintained. It, it doesn't seem, yeah, there may be borderline cases, but guards can use a degree of discretion. You don't need them going through your fucking accounting books. No, but listen. Anyway, on to something that was was instead deeply amusing, Michael. Yes. So, Nancy Pelosi, (laughs) the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Yes, she's... The public face of democratic resistance to the Trump administration. A woman who called uh, Trump a coward for not wearing masks. And when talking about the Republican National Convention and the fact that people at it weren't wearing masks and the chairs were too close together, said that it was as if Trump had slapped science in the face.
1: Poor old poor old science.
0: Yeah, poor old science. It's, it's taking shots left and right <laughs> yeah. these days. And then video came out of her at a hairdresser's. Mm. Not wearing a mask, Michael.
1: Not wearing a and mask. And in
0: a city where the regulations said that you couldn't do that. You couldn't go in for, a, you know, whatever I assume it was a hair color or maybe a blow dry. And uh, her response, whatever whatever about that, the shop owner released the video yeah. saying that she had felt it was a slap in the face to small businesses. Not a lot of slaps in the face going around in American politics in the minute. A lot of slapping. Because of all of the restrictions on how small businesses can operate and... Whatever about her reasoning, it may be good, it may be bad. And Nancy Pelosi's office came out and said that, yes, that did happen, but she was assured by the Salon that they could see her. And and remember, Michael, this this is one of the most powerful Democrats in the country, intimately familiar with the law. The third most powerful politician in the United States. By law of succession, yes. So it's Trump, then the vice president, then her. And she says, to paraphrase this, I'm, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Yeah. And then demanded an apology <laughs> from the hairdresser in the salon.
1: You know what? Over here, people were kept on going on about, in tones really of admiration, grudging or otherwise. About Phil Hogan and his brass neck, or as, as one person observed to me, he must, he has, he, he, what is it? He's as tough as a jockey's balls or something to that effect. That, but he has nothing on Nancy. Nancy has turned around and said, not only has she not uh, gone into some terrible mea culpa and exposed her, her breast to the nation and poured ashes on her head in penitence, no. She's demanded an apology, and has accused the shop owner of engaging in some kind of nefarious attempt to entrap her. Now, did you see? I, there was a, a lovely, a lovely little sideline on this. The actual hairdresser, I think, who was dressing her hair, has—he's
0: uh, found some very expensive legal counsel. Somehow, he has a legal team.
1: Now, I. I don't know how many what hairdressers. I mean, I'm sure Nancy goes to a very, very expensive hairdresser, but it's not many hairdressers who are not actually involved in any criminal activity. It's not like this man has been charged with a well-publicized murder or anything, but he has a legal team around him. It's it's almost as if somebody provided that uh, facility, that resource for him in order that he should be able to make the right comments.
0: But uh, yeah, it is it is shocking that a um, that a hairdresser would find uh, legal representation so quickly after uh, it became a problem for one of those powerful people in America.
1: Yeah, I, I also just enjoyed the fact that our poor old gobshites go and play in golf and not one of them attempted to suggest really that they didn't, I mean, Hogan kind of, well, not really, but none of the others really attempted even to to, to say that they didn't know what the rules were. They said, well, this was said to us, and, well, that seems to be all right, but I know we shouldn't have done it on race. she has been absolutely, no, well, I just, how, how is the defence for this woman, who is from this, a Californian, native Californian, to say she didn't know what the rules
0: were, and that's okay. But I think, I mean, the in the Gulf thing, you did see people come out and say, well, we we're assured by this federation or that federation that these rules were in place, but none of them had the balls to go, and therefore I demand an apology. How dare they do this to me? That's, <laughs>
1: it's brass, Nick, it's... Uh...
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got to kind of admire it, though, and it seems to be working. Of course, at this point in America, facts don't matter, and no one cares. It's all just raw tribalism and hate from both sides, so...
1: It well, you know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Here we are, it's the fourth of September, September, October. So there's two months and a little bit left before the actual vote of the presidential election, and there's the sense that we are now getting in to the end of the election. Whereas if this was Britain or Ireland, we'd be a month away from the election ever happening. So yes, we are. We are now in a. It's it's a po to the extent that there's ever any there's any news left in the world. In the United States, we're certainly post-news at this stage. Everything is editorial. But still, it's not a good
0: look. No, no. I mean, it's 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 not a great one. On another little fun little American story, Michael, mm-hmm. this is just something I, I came across today. And uh, it's something I, I think the listeners should do if, if they're bored. Go on to Google and throw in the phrase American inventors. I just look at the, the people who come up. It's a it's a cornucopia, Michael. Yes. Of American inventors. But I, I did notice something weird in that when you do it, these you know, these images of inventors come up and you can click on them and Google will give you more information particularly about it. And I remember looking at it and I was like, nine of the first ten of the, the first sheet of images it shows you are black.
1: Yeah, it's it's curious. The very first one is Thomas Edison. No, that's He's. I suppose we would regard Thomas Edison as the, the inventor of par excellence, but then yeah, we have uh, George Washington Carver, who I'd heard of, and then we have uh, another, did a
0: lot more than peanuts.
1: A lot more than peanuts. A lot of important people. There's Madame C.J. Walker about whom I remember seeing a, a, a film. She was a million a millionaire, made herself a millionaire by selling cosmetics door to door to, to to black women. And I'm sure she was a tremendous businesswoman and an entrepreneur and a pioneer in her day. And to do what she did at the time that she did it for a a woman, let alone a black woman, was an incredible achievement. But I couldn't see quite what it was that she invented. Particularly if, and we're not, which this list is not done, it would seem chronologically or on the basis of, uh, it's not alphabetical. She comes ahead of Alexander Graham Bell.
0: He comes ahead of Henry Ford. Now, Samuel Henry, Morse.
1: Samuel, now I would say Alexander Graham Benjamin
0: Franklin. Alexander
1: Graham Bell, of course, you know whether or not he invented the telephone at all. If you ask an Italian, they will say Meucci invented the oh, telephone. God. And actually they're 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 probably right. It seems that what Bell had Bell kinda of hid the thing and Meucci didn't have the money to apply for the patent and and Bell
0: did. No, we're not. We're not having another podcast destroyed by the Bell-Minucci debate.
1: <laughs> but yes, indeed, as you say, Samuel
0: Morse. Uh, and uh, look, I, I think when you go through it, and like the first twenty or so, the thing you notice is nearly all of them are black. And this is is just a sort of weird thing, and it's something I'm particularly interested. In. How because Google are not an unbiased displayer of information. Nikola Tesla. They heavily curtail and in cases modify and reframe things that you put in as uh, that you would like to see and I don't think people often enough realize that this is being done but Google themselves freely admit they do it it's not a secret it's just the people it's like when I say the National Union of Journalists in Ireland and this is actually a bit of a problem for Grit. the National Ju- Union of Journalists in Ireland has been a pro choice organization for decades. Correct. And they don't, it's, it's no great secret, although it, a surprising amount of journalists themselves don't know that, but you can go and you can see stuff on their website and promotion of pro choice events. But people assume that the NUJ would have to be apolitical in nearly everything, because if they're not, it would become very easy to attack journalists as being heavily biased if the journalists' union has uh, political positions and that's a position going back to the
1: 70s i think because there's a journalist i can't remember i think was from the north who was unhappy with this and oh campaigned hard and fat against it i think eventually left the in the 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 uh, the irish what is it what's the acronym for the irish journalists I keep no, the Nuj, it's the it's the,
0: it's
1: the Nuj. It's, is it is it part of the British?
0: It is the the, the Nuj. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: it's the Irish. Yeah, so it's part of the Nuj. He camped, and eventually he left the Nuj. And now the you'd say, well, what difference? I don't know if it's still the case, but it was a problem for a long time because the Nuj was a little bit like Equity, the Actors Union, in that if you wanted to get a press card. You had to be a member of the NUJ and to be a me- but you you couldn't. It wasn't you couldn't just join the NUJ. You had you to you, but to be to get a job in journalism, you had to be in the NUJ. You had to, it's a bit like an. You had to be, to be an actor. You had to be in equity, but you couldn't get into equity unless you were an actor. So there were income. There were things about this a proportion of your income that had to come from writing. And stuff. So the NUJ was an important organization. And uh, there, there were things you couldn't do unless you were in the NUJ. So it meant that uh, presumably a, a number of journalists had to ch- ch- swallow their co- their their, uh, their principles, at least compromise themselves to be part of an organisation which was an active campaigning organisation on the issue. And an, an issue which in Ireland at the time was, I mean, for a long time, a very divisive issue. Uh, it, yeah, it, you would have thought... It's funny. I was I was listening to a an interview with an American journalist today, who was talking about the change in reportage in the states. He said, "The funny thing is that once upon a time, if you're someone like me, in a way, you went into journalism because you wanted to get away from politics. Part of your job was to make sure that nobody really knew what your politics were. They might speculate, but that your job was to report the facts in." As, as best you could and then let other people speculate. But you never wanted people to know for certain. That was the job. That was for columnists, think pieces, editorials, not for, not for a journalist. He said, now, of course it's every you have to ha- it's pretty well, every report is ultimately an opinion piece.
0: I think yeah, I think that style of journalism was, was ultimately a bit of a, an aberration of a very particular time period and that the standard, I think when you hit, uh, historically it doesn't go back that far depending on what form you're looking at. Yeah. But newspapers have not tried to be unbiased. They've not tried to be apolitical. When you look at some of the shit that Pulitzer got away with, like Pulitzer tried to start a war.
1: Well, that's, no, Pulitzer are, who was the, what was the, who was the great American, the great American, uh, newspaper guy, Orson Wells satirised him in Citizen Kane and there's a that, Oh, Hearst. Hearst. There's that line which is supposed to be a line from Hearst in, in Citizen Kane. He said, you provide the war I'll provide the coverage.
0: Well, actually, you know, it was unfair to say that Pulitzer tried to start a war. At Pulitzer and Hearst, there is a fairly strong argument, did cause a war. The Spanish-American
1: Yeah, the, Spa- war. the Spanish-American War which... Uh,
0: now, they were involved, whether or not they actually did that, but well, that's yeah.
1: It uh, it gave it it, it was uh, if nothing else, it it, gave, it probably it was at least in part responsible for Teddy Roosevelt becoming president.
0: My personal view is that there's nothing wrong with journalism that takes a side on things as long as it is made absolutely clear to the reader that there is an editorial line here. Like Gript, you can go to Grip's about page. And Grift will tell you what its editorial line on lots of things is. Yeah. And you know that. My problem is with journalism that says it is apolitical and unbiased. Like, let's take the New York Times. And then you you read stuff in it and you sort of go, that's not unbiased. That's not what you say this is. This is misleading to the readers. Or if you're reading something that you know is explicitly progressive or explicitly conservative or Marxist or capitalist or whatever... You can then make your own mind up based on that and you know that story selection is uh, is probably going to be a play. but on the on the Google thing and and why we got to the NUJ, people pay nowhere near enough attention to things that deliver information to them and assume them to be unbiased, even when those groups will maybe not publicly say they are biased, but will, if you look into it, have said somewhere that these are actually, the things we do. So if you pull up a list of, of American inventors and nearly all of the top 20 are black, something is happening there to do that.
1: Yeah, well, that's, it's a choice, obviously.
0: And this, this is only a small. There's tons of stuff. People have, people have spent years pulling together stuff, different things that if you turn to Google, will bring certain results. And Google themselves have, it, have openly talked about manipulating certain results. That they deem to be particularly problematic, but I did I did think it was a bit funny in that you have to get like let's say uh, Gareth Morgan is the fifth inventor it lists. Yeah, Wikipedia says his most notable inventions were a three-position traffic signal and a smoke hood, notably used. Excuse me, notably used in a nineteen sixteen tunnel construction disaster rescue. Important. Yes. You get to about 23, and uh, which requires you to click through multiple, you know, show next images. Uh, Henry Ford, and it doesn't, Wikipedia in that little thing it tells you about the inventors, doesn't even bother to say what Henry Ford invented. One, because we know what Henry Ford invented, and two, of the things we don't know about, there are quite a lot of them. <laughs>
1: What what do we what would we say Henry Ford invented what, the 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 mobile production
0: line is that it? I mean, you have the production line. You have multiple innovations in the racing and car field, obviously.
1: Yeah. You
0: also had then he had the um, he had an airplane company, which I believe he has a couple of patents for as well. Um. Doesn't have a patent on it, but did put massive amounts of money behind promoting the Protocols of the Elders of Zion,
1: so... Yeah, that's not quite so.
0: That's that's less of a help to humanity. Yeah. Bit. And more of a, well, I just don't like the Jews. Yeah,
1: we, that's the bit we don't talk about when we're saying he's from Cork.
0: Yeah, yeah his, his publishing company published a four-volume set of books called The International Jew, The World's Problem. So, um, okay, <laughs> Henry Ford didn't like the Jews. Mm. But we, we tend to sort of... We'll,
1: we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll go. Actually, um, speaking... Uh, I don't really know if I want to say this now, but um, tangentially speaking of, uh, shall we say, rough that area, there is actually a little bit of good news or what could pass for good news, I suppose, these days, um, with regarding the Middle East and Israel, which is where we mentioned the Jewish people.
0: Oh, is this the non-historic-historic agreement the, that yes.
1: everyone wants to know Joe Biden's views on? <laughs> you know, we're talking about Brassneck, there was something genuinely. There was comedy about that. There was proper. Was it the
0: Irish Times who did that.
1: The Irish Times did that, and I think I have a feeling the RTE might have done something. So,
0: great. just just for the listener, in case you missed this, when there was there has been a deal signed between uh, involving Israel, and it was brokered by the Americans, right by the Trump administration, and I think it was either RTE or the Irish Times. I think it could, you you could be right. It could be RT. And this deal came out, and no one wants to say. Obviously, you can't say Trump did anything good, but certain people were saying that this had the potential to be a truly historic deal. And let's just say it was orTA So RTE, uh went and, and found a statement from I don't know if they asked Joe Biden or they got a statement from Joe Biden on what Joe Biden thought about this deal that he had nothing to do with and which he. Was in no way attached. To... Yeah,
1: I think they got a spokesperson for the Biden campaign who gave them a, who gave them a statement. Now, the the the, the initial deal was with normalising relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Well, on the foot of that deal, Bahrain has now started uh, the process of normalising relations with Israel. I don't. People may have, if they have, if they're on social media, may have come across little bits of. Video yesterday and the day before, or, or possibly the day before, of uh, flight an airplane flying and there was an El Al pilot saying shalom and welcome whatever, and it was a flight between uh, Israel and the, the UAE was the first that has happened, um, possibly the first ever. Anyway, there was another little bit of news attached to that, which was that now the Saudis have are now allowing Israel and Israeli flights to use their airspace, which, again, is another straw in the wind, whether or not the Saudis are in a position
0: The, um, to the Iranians are taking this very poorly.
1: They're not taking it well. The uh, Khomeini, you'd have to say, what would be characterised in some quarters as slightly anti-Semitic,
0: Oh, you mean the reference to the Jewish member of Trump's family as that Jew?
1: Yeah, for example, uh, they, they're not at all happy, <laughs> but uh, <coughs> Bahrain are doing it. The, the Saudis look like they're, they want to do it. UAE is doing it. There are other countries in the Middle East that are looking on and doing I mean, it's
0: it. It's actually, from the deal itself is, is, is interesting, but from a geopolitical perspective, it's really interesting. I think it could have been on the podcast. Because I know I've had this conversation with a couple of people, maybe a year or so ago, maybe probably slightly longer, maybe two years now, about how Iran's power gave Israel a great opportunity to normalize relations with a lot of other countries in the Middle East. Yeah, Because Iran, uh, through its, uh, shall we say, expeditionary forces and support for groups not terribly supportive of other regimes in the Middle East, had pissed off a great deal of its neighbours and they wanted to maintain a balance of power. So it gave Israel a great opportunity to normalise relations so Iran is, is hitting the roof because they don't want this.
1: There are all sorts of historical cultural things going on here. Iran
0: <clears throat>
1: never had good relations with the Arab world. They're Persians, Farsi. They the imper- were an imperial power. And they're Shi, it's a Shia nation as opposed to Sunni. Most of the Arabs are Sunni. Also, on top of that, there is something that's probably forgotten these days, but Israel had very close relations with the Shah. And the Israel military had very close relations with the Shah's army and other aspects of the Shah's military. So the Israelis. Under the Khomeini regime, were deeply unpopular, and the Israeli, the these Israeli, the Iranians, and I just wanted to read a quote here. In contrast, the Iranians have always talked about you know wiping Israel out and pushing Israel into the sea, which is the language of Hezbollah, who they support in Lebanon, but in the language of Hamas, who rule Palestine. Was well, it somebody made the point about the the leader of Hamas? He's now into his fourteenth year of his four year term, but. Here's an, a kind, the kind of language that is very surprising in them at least. Israel is historically part of the heritage of this whole region. So the Jewish people have a place among us. And that's the Bahraini Foreign Minister Khalid bin Ahmed al-Khalifa.
0: Now when people, people, when the Trump deal was signed, some people said it was historic, other people said it's ridiculous, you can't call it historic. But Michael, would you say historically that's the sort of statement uh, Middle Eastern foreign ministers have tended to come out with regarding Israel?
1: Absolutely not, because when the, the fundamental position in the Arab world was they, like, they would always pretend to have deep sympathy and understanding and uh, empathy for the Palestinian people when everything mm-hmm. they've acted has actually shown that they don't give a damn about them and they wish they would go off. And disappear off the face of the earth.
0: I think in many instances it was less don't give a damn and more actively virulently disliked.
1: Yeah. But along with that that official position was the position that Israel didn't Israel really should just be disappeared. So the language of the Jewish people have a place amongst us. Israel is historically part of the heritage of the whole reason. Now that's coming very, very close to say to recognizing the right of the state of Israel to exist. So, yeah, I think that is historic. Also, on the other side, as we mentioned before, part of this deal was getting the Israelis to stop on their planned annexation of a very large chunk of the West Bank. So it's going to... I think it's... uh, You know, Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize for being elected president. But himself and his secretaries of state various were engaged in I don't know how many wars and illegal acts of uh, assassination across the globe, and yet he was this dove of peace. I, has Donald actually initiated any military campaigns?
0: So, the situation with Donald Trump and and foreign military intervention is actually quite complicated because it's been a really unexamined part of his presidency and it's one of the things that the media have been so pissed off at him and so determined to take him down that they've only really focused on domestic policy unless it's something that can be explicitly used to hurt him but there have been he hasn't started any new wars but in some of the theaters in which the american military was already active They have been given kind of new tools, new weapons, new toys. Mm -hmm. And there have been a, a gearing up of some quite substantial decapitation strike style affairs, as we saw with the Iranians, actually, most notably. And that kind of got brought up, but only because people said it was going to lead to a furious backlash and Americans would die and it would be Donald Trump's fault.
1: Yeah, like North Korea was going to do horrible things, Iran was going to do horrible things, you know, well, let's face it, they're not going to give much kudos out to to Republicans on foreign policy. Do you remember when poor old Mitt Romney was made a laughing and a a, a hissing and a byword, a laughing stock, because he said that Russia was going to be a big problem for the American foreign policy in the future?
0: What was it Obama's line? Oh yes, the the Cold War called. It wants its foreign policy back.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, turns out
1: history isn't over, and Mr. Putin is not unproblematical, as we learned in Syria and in other places. Anyway, I just wanted to tr- throw that in there as a bit of a a bit of good news, which won't be trumpeted around the place, but hopefully might actually. Listen, we've had many false stones in the in, in the Middle East, but hopefully this may be the beginning of something which might actually impact positively on the lives of people who are getting bombed and live in uncomfortable circumstances because of the rockets and the bombings and the stabbings and the terrorism and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that that also happens to end up on our doorstep too. So we wish them
0: well. So just one thing before we close, Michael. Um, the Irish Examiner, which I think... Long-time listeners will know, is the favourite newspaper of, uh, of myself.
1: Absolutely, it's your it's your, your go-to paper.
0: No, nope, it's not like I hold anything against them. They were the people who first reported the, what became, the, I'm just going to say Gulfgate, even though I hate the term, a situation which I thought totally nonsensical, the extent to which we overreached. We took down our own trade minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what can only be considered some sort of self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, I've heard some people saying that was a good thing because of the company he was in. There were too close links with lobbyists and politicians, and we can't support that sort of thing. To which I say, cool, but that's not why he lost his job. Yeah, That's totally tangential to it. So now, this slow sinking realization in people of, oh, we don't just get to pick someone else and they become trade commissioner. We're, in fact, not going to get another trade commissioner. We're going to get, at best, maybe a nice mid-range commissioning role. Well, the, yeah. The,
1: yeah. You know, well, they, they have been defying the, uh, the president. And you can't go around defying the president without having consequences, Gary.
0: It, it turns out as if people just realise oh, wait, that person whose day we made substantially worse, they actually get to to pick <laughs> where our person goes. It's almost as if nobody thought it quite all the way
1: through, isn't it?
0: And I, I have really enjoyed Yeah, I'll give the Irish Examiner props here. They did break the story. But the victory lap they're having for it is a bit ridiculous, given that it was an 80-person event which no one made any attempts to hide. Yeah. <laughs> but they ha- they have got an editorial. The Irish Examiner's famous editorials always a high watermark in sensible policy making and not at all totally fucking insane for the most part. Yes. And this is the Irish Examiner view Michael. Ireland deserves the trade portfolio. Deserves. Deserves Michael.
1: And precisely, what have we done to do to deserve it?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked, Michael. Von der Leyen has publicly promised to be fair in her deliberations. Fairness must include acknowledging the huge sacrifices the Irish people and our government have made. Mm. Now, I detect a slight bit of a, um, I wouldn't say panic, but a sort of, oh, we did this. Oh, this is coming back on us, isn't it? So, uh,
1: what we have made terrible sacrifices in getting rid of Phil Hogan. Well, was, we we was made a
0: huge sacrifice when we uh, protected COVID-19 guidelines by losing a powerful voice in Brussels. And that the Irish Examiner was central to this, Michael.
1: In other words, it was their fault.
0: Yes. And if Ireland didn't get the Trade Commission. Now, this isn't what they say, but if we didn't get the Trade Commission as Brexit was rolling down the path, uh, the Irish Examiner could have materially contributed to Ireland getting a less than optimal outcome in that process. Mm. Sounds like the sort of thing, Michael, that business people and politicians and other people of a sensible disposition may hold against the Irish examiner later.
1: Well, there's lots of things you, sh- you could hold against the Irish examiner, Gary. But I would say that if we're going to hand out kudos here and prizes, the, the, the teacher could the to who made the statement that uh, they'd talked to the commissioner and had asked him to consider his position. Well, when the minute the commissioner considered his position, decided his position was perfectly fine, you know what? They had done what they needed to do. They had made their statement. The commissioner is ultimately untouchable. They don't have the right to hire or fire him. He's an independent man under the under the, the laws and regulations of the European Union. But for some reason, Gary, they decided, no, we are going to take out the trade commissioner, Big Phil. And, because they they were the ones that they doubled the bets, they ratcheted up the pressure, and they made it basically impossible for the commissioner not to go to Phil and say, "Phil, it's time to go." Because
0: yeah, one of the uh, one of the EU states is saying that they don't have any faith in you, your own country,
1: and the leader of your party, in fact, are saying that. Uh, they don't have faith in you, and you have to. No, that pissed off Ursula and the rest of them for a whole bunch of reasons. One, because they didn't probably want to lose Bill Phil because whatever about him, he must have had a, a reasonable grasp on the story. He'd been involved in the negotiations to some degree anyway. He was up to he was up to speed, and now they're going to find someone else to do the job. But also, the big thing that really annoyed them was the fact that. They were forced, a national government was forcing them to do something. And that's not what national governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to stay out of that and leave the commission to police the commission. That's her job. And unless there's actual peculation and corruption going on, the commissioners stay in situ. And then, then she there was, it was clear they had to have a man and a woman or somebody identifying as a man and someone was identifying as a woman. And then they were going through this whole piece, oh, well, they weren't sure. And I'd say that was the final. Well, I don't know. What do I know? But the fact that they were taking this and they weren't listening to her explicit, give me a choice of X or Y, but we're going to only give her one name. Now, you could say perfectly reasonably, it's not up to her to decide what the sovereign government of Ireland does regarding its choice of uh, commissioner. Sure whether it gives you one or two or three names. But for a woman who's already pissed off, why just why piss her off even more? Whatever chance you had of keeping trade, well that went
0: up in smoke right at that stage. There, they, there is a very complicated negotiation going on in, at the minute with England or Britain. Now, high likelihood that just fails totally. Okay, but here's the thing: the idea that we could just pick someone. Even someone who was very involved in the Irish side of things, but not in the same way as an acting trade commissioner was, and slot them in without any issue was farcical from the start. It was clearly not how this was going to go.
1: No, it wasn't going to work like that. It wasn't going to be just. No, they
0: were going to pick someone, one of the other commissioners, who had been involved at some level with those negotiations and was familiar at. With the negotiations from the EU perspective and not from a national government perspective. So, yeah, you got Simon Coveney and people like that. But this is a different organization. These are different things. And uh, I just, I, I'd nearly forgotten about them saying they'd lost faith in Phil Hogan causing the resignation because that kind of makes the, um, the regulations on food in bars now a little bit easier to explain. With just a very clear, these people have no idea what they're doing.
1: Not much. It's just not much.
0: No idea at all. Miha Martin has spent twenty years getting into a position to realise he cannot function in it. <laughs> oh well. He has. He has no plans. He has no options. He, just, he has nothing. Why
1: does he need a plan? He he has. He's done it.
0: No, no. He he thinks he's done it. He's still getting that. That little asterisk beside the name, and now it just won't be first Finnafall leader. Not to be Taoiseach, it'll be last leader of Finnafall.
1: To be Tishok. We'll
0: we we will see where that sentence
1: ends. <laughs> you mean possibly last leader of Finnafall? Yeah, who knows?
0: When I mean, well, you're you're getting near to single digits,
1: very yeah, uncomfortably close, uncomfortably.
0: I mean, your your couple of bad decisions about coalition. Uh, you're a couple of bad decisions away from discussing whether or not you should form one party with the Social Democrats. Yeah. And they may be the bigger party.
1: Yeah. Just, oh, well, to hell with it, just join, you know, decide that the time for Labour has come, you know,
0: for a hundred. You know, well, there was a great line in, in this editorial, Michael. I loved it. And it said, uh, the choice of nominees will, of course, be central to whether Ireland retains the trade portfolio. Simon Coveney has made it clear his name is not to go forward in the list of two that goes to uh, uh, Brussels which is to say they know they're not getting trade. they absolutely know but here's the the Irish examiners that's like but the Commission president should consider the seriousness which we in Ireland take accountability ensuring that EU commissioners play oh. by the same rules as ordinary citizens. Oh God and then you know here's here's a great one they just pivot Michael they pivot with no warning. This is the next two paragraphs. Yeah. If the president wishes to reflect on real and dangerous lawlessness, she needn't look no further than Berlin, where last weekend hundreds of far-right activists attempted to storm the parliament building in protest at COVID-19 measures. An alarming scene that many Germans thought had been confined to their history books, they were f- flags of the pre-1918 German Empire and broke through a police barrier. Wow. Now... <laughs> I like the idea of just going, the the thing about accountability and that EU commissioners should play by the same rules as ordinary citizens, that's one thing. And then the hard pivot to, because a fierce far-right problem in Germany, isn't there? And we all know where that's gone before. Oh, yeah. Which, I'm not sure what the point of those two paragraphs are, but uh, I can't imagine she'll take them well.
1: Unless somebody has told them that the... The person in, first in line for the the commissionership is a German, and this is the way they don't want to give them Germans any power.
0: Yeah, you know the Nazis, as if they didn't realise that the person they're talking to is German. <laughs> and then they of course say, well, if she doesn't give us uh, trade, um, she would cause dismay in Ireland but also risk the popular support that the EU enjoys here. It's a wonderful editorial, and I've yet to see a single person speak positively of it. I've talked to people who were in Brussels, I've talked to people who were in Ireland in politics. Both found the entire thing somewhere between laughable and just horribly misguided. In the sort of way where you can't be angry, but you just sort of put an arm on someone's shoulder and go, "Is that? Are you finished now? Like you? Did you get it all?"
1: (coughs) You know what? I mean, actually, it reminds me of an editorial written by at a different time, but also by a Cork newspaper, the Skibbereen Eagle which famously, in in an editorial reflecting on uh, (laughs) the state of, I don't know, whatever it was happening in Russia at the time, said, warned the Tsar of Russia, the Skibbereen eagle has its eye on you.
0: Oh, I've seen that one, yes.
1: And I think this is just about, this will have about as much effect now on the commission, having an editorial in the examiner, as the Tsar was probably concerned with the new Skibberine Eagle has his eye on you. It's a remark. Well, you have to write about something.
0: I I would also like to point out that there are some good people who work at the Irish Examiner, but it does exist because the Irish Times needs to fulfil a printing order.
1: There are some very fine people working in the Examiner. There's the... uh, there's the lady that makes the teas uh, on every other day, and she's... A no,
0: tour- no, there, there are some actual journalists in the Irish Examiner who are decent.
1: You're always... Um,
0: yes, no, I am, but I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was true. Just not all of them, and definitely not the people who write their editorials.
1: Anyway, um, I suppose we'll be back on Sunday, barring accidents or earthquakes, or meteorites, let's face it. We haven't had a bit, any... Horrible
0: news for a while so. That just sounds like you're saying we won't be back because of your work ethic, Michael.
1: Oh, no, no, my work ethic. What is an
0: earthquake going to throw you off? Am I going to get a text on Saturday night saying there's been an earthquake in the Kashmir region? I won't be there.
1: Uh, no, uh, I was just concerned, you know, when the earthquakes hit Wexford, very often it affects our internet. Although, here's... a. Uh, a fun fact well, I don't know fun fact for you but it's a funish fact that seismically speaking Ireland is the safest place in the world. We're in the Guinness Book of Records the the place least likely to in to have disruptive or dangerous seismic activity. There you go. There are not many mentions of Ireland in the Guinness Book of Records, but that is one. And now we know. Well, however, barring earthquakes, meteorites, tsunamis, and our China going to war with India and disrupting our internet because of that, we will be back on Sunday with our Sunday may suddenly. Uh, otherwise, enjoy the good weather if you're having it, and stay safe and mind yourselves. And we will t- back on Sunday.
0: All the best.